Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 today. But uh, the last couple of times I've been up here, I'll try to get your mind back in Philippians for a second. We've been looking at verses 4 through 9 in Philippians chapter 4. These are the closing imperatives that are typical at the end of one of Paul's letters. The only difference in Philippians is he's got this closing section of thanks that follows after this section. But if you remember, a lot of people uh, refer to, commentators refer to the imperatives that typically close a Pauline epistle as staccato imperatives. It's a list of quick, sharp commands that come at the end of the letter um, with very little exposition around them. And we talked about while these commands might at first glance many times seem to be just a series of important imperatives that are not necessarily dependent on context. They are, in fact, when you really look at them, they're wisely chosen commands that are best understood as some of the best ways uh, for us to take the teaching of the entirety of the letter and to apply it to our lives. And that is true in Philippians, maybe more than any of the other letters. So we see this pattern in most of Paul's letters. As he begins to close out the letter, he adds the series of commands. And while they're great commands for memorization and to apply to your life in a variety of situations, they are especially relevant in light of whatever the circumstances and themes that the letter has addressed up to this point. And since I was just up here a couple of weeks ago, we won't go through quite as extensive of a review of the context in the church in Philippi, uh, which adds the weight and the context that we need to these commands. Uh, But by way of quick review, we can remember that the Philippians are under some form of persecution from the outside. We know that's going on. We know that they're suffering in some way. There's different ways that they are suffering based on other things Paul has said. There's a false teaching threat that's around them, and there is danger of that false teaching infiltrating the church. And in light of these things, they are repeatedly being called throughout the letter to unity, to remember their unity in Christ and to stand firm together and to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel and to together strive for the mind of Christ and to follow his example that's laid out in that uh, passage in Philippians 2 that we recited earlier from the Carmen Christi 2, 5 through 11. So they've been reminded in different ways that they need to be prioritizing their heavenly citizenship and not living for the things of this world, especially in light of the fact that, as he reminds them often, that Christ is returning. Christ is returning, and he may do it at any moment. So in light of those things, he's giving them these commands. And he reminds them, something that comes up throughout the letter is he reminds them of the gospel and all the various points of the gospel come up continually throughout the letter. And of course, uh, we remember that the thesis of the entire letter found in 127 is that they are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So all of these things, as they have been expanded on in much greater detail throughout the letter, all kind of under the heading of living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that he then gives them these commands at the end of the book. These are the summation of how they are to live in light of what he has been teaching them about the gospel and in light of the difficult circumstances that they might find themselves in. 
whether they are challenged by false teachers outside of the church or persecution from the culture or persecution from the government, as Paul is experiencing, whether they are threatened with challenges to, to threats to church unity and just maybe just the general suffering that they might be experiences, experiencing because of all of these issues or because of just life in general. It is in light of these things that Paul gives them the seven imperatives that he lays out in verses 4, 4 through 9. Let's look at that together. Read those verses together uh, one more time to remind us of what he's been saying. Starting in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So, recap in verse 4, we see the command to rejoice twice. So two of those seven imperatives are the command to rejoice, to, to rejoice at all times. And this makes perfect sense in light of the rest of the letter. Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy, and it is a predominant theme throughout the book. So of course, Paul is going to use this time at the end to reinforce that command to rejoice always. Christians are to rejoice, and rejoicing is something that we've talked about should be expected of all Christians in light of the gospel that Paul's been proclaiming throughout the letter. In light of the gospel, when you put that on one side and then reasons for not rejoicing on the other, there's no comparison. So rejoicing always is a logical command. In verse 5, we see the third imperative where he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And we talked about how that means something closer to let your graciousness be known to everyone. That is supposed to be their reputation, our reputation to unbelievers, to everyone around us, even, even among those who are persecuting them and causing them problems. And so that's convicting for us also, because as we live in a culture that's just growing more and more in its hostility towards one another and to Christian morality in particular, the idea of having a reputation of graciousness is quite convicting. And then last time in verse 6, we saw the complementary commands to not be anxious about anything, one command, but instead to pray about everything, second command. Again, another command that is so helpful in the context that the Philippians are living in, and something that is beneficial for us also in light of all that God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has taken away our sins through the death of Jesus, and since he, had, and since he, was, he was pleased to do that, even though it meant putting his own son to death to take away our biggest problem, our sin problem, if he was willing and pleased to do that, then it only makes sense for us to never be anxious and to instead go to him with any other problems that we may have because any of those problems cannot possibly be as big of a deal as our sin problem. So we can be trusted with dealing with our sin 
You can be trusted with dealing with anything. And today we're going to look at the last two imperatives in this section, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. And it's important to put them together because in the Greek, this is actually one long sentence. They're meant to build off of one another. These are actually the last two real commands that are in the book of Philippians. There's an imperative in verse 21 to greet every saint, but the rest of the book really is a word of personal update and thanks. So what we have in our passage today really is the final word of command. That is to be the summary of how they ought to live in light of everything that he has said in the letter to this point. It's like if you were maybe having a really important and possibly final conversation with one of your children, and you just shared a lot of really important things that you hope that they will remember, and the conversation is drawing to a close, and you're not sure if you'll ever see them again, so you want to tell them, you want to give them just one final thing to do, something that will hopefully summarize and remind them of everything you've just said Something that will help them to live out what you have been talking about in the best way possible. If they were going to implement just one thing, it would be this. And you say that. And in, 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 and in a sense, that is exactly what Paul is doing here with, with all of these imperatives, verses 4 through 9, the seven imperatives we see in there. Um, but you can see in how he begins this last sentence in verse 8, that he intends to do this in a special way right here. That word translated as finally, when he says, finally, brothers. That word translated as finally more literally means something along the lines of as, as for the rest or, or that which remains. It's kind of like saying, so, so what's left to say is this, or the end of the matter is this. It really is like a final parting command that intends to give them something that they can do that will be the demonstration of the, their faithfulness to the rest of the letter. As they try to live faithfully as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel, as they deal with the various trials and persecutions that they're experiencing, it is obedience to these commands that is of the utmost importance that will demonstrate their faithfulness to the whole of the teaching in general, because no matter what is going on around them, no matter how bad trials get, no matter how difficult the suffering, no matter how dangerous and prevalent the false teaching around them might become, if they will just be faithful to what we see here, then they are promised that in spite of all of those circumstances, the God of peace will be with them. And it's no coincidence that this is the promise that we see at the end of these two verses, considering that it is the peace of God that is the promise from the last section also. Them knowing and understanding the peace that comes from God, the God of peace, is vital to these commands. This is a concern that Paul has for those who are dealing with trials and persecution and with suffering and with conflict. It's not necessarily that those things are going to be remedied and they're not going to be a problem anymore. His concern is that it's actually in those things, in those very things, that God's people will know the true peace that is 
from God. And it's a peace that cannot be explained by the world. It's one that, as we just read last time, one that passes all understanding because it is a peace that does not rely in any way on the changing of circumstances. But it can be obtained even while living through the worst of circumstances. And it's for that reason that we will also benefit greatly today from studying verses 8 and 9. And to that end, I have three points for your outline today. Three points. Point number one, how we are to think. Point number two, how we are to act. And point number three, what we are to expect. And as usual, I have totally front-loaded the first point, and I'm just going to squeeze the last two in at the end. That is how it's going to work. So uh, point one... Point one, how we are to think. How we are to think, and we see that right away in verse 8. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So verses 8 and 9 are actually interesting in their structure because they both give you a list of words kind of as a description, and then they end, each verse ends with the actual command concerning the list that preceded it. So the command at the end of verse 8, the command in verse 8 is actually to think about these things. And then listed above, we see six adjectives and two nouns that fill out what that command looks like. We have talked several times about how much Paul emphasizes thinking throughout the book of Philippians. Having a, as he said several times, having a certain mind among them. Throughout the book, he's, he said phrases like that. In fact, the word phreneo, which is translated as have this mind or think this way or have this attitude, in other places in the book that you've seen, you've seen that word translated that way in other places in the book, that word is used more in Philippians than any other book in the New Testament. Paul is really wanting to communicate that idea to the Philippians. More than one-third of its uses in the New Testament come in the book of Philippians. But what is interesting here is that Paul uses a different word for think than he has been using throughout the book. And it is the word legizomai, or from the word legizomai. And this is a word that has a slightly different meaning than just, just thinking the way he's been using it before. In many contexts, in many contexts, uh, this term carries with it the idea, uh, the idea of uh, evaluating or considering something in a mathematical type of way. It's used often for thinking about math problems. It's the exact type of thinking that you all are like, I don't like that type of thinking. It's the idea of considering, evaluating, and making a logical decision about something. This is why some translations have used the phrase, dwell on these things. Dwell on them. Keep them in your mind. The idea is that you're supposed to be in the constant practice of filling your mind with the list of virtues that we see here in verse 8. It is a discipline of thinking about certain things 
rather than thinking about other things. It's a discipline. This is different than what it seems like our normal understanding of the practice of disciplined Christian thinking looks like. Our our normal default understanding isn't a positive command to think, but this is actually a positive command. We need to see that the command of Paul here is kind of one that flies in the face of so many of the patterns of advice on thinking that that we see in the world today. So much of the practice of Eastern mysticism and meditation that has infiltrated our society and much of Christian thinking, that's patently false. The, The idea that we hear so often in the world of trying to just completely clear your mind through practices like Eastern meditation and yoga, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Clearing your mind is bad. What is interesting is that we are told that the goal of so many of those practices is to try and obtain what? To try and obtain inner peace. But here we are told that this might be the way to some form of false worldly serenity or something, but it is not the way to the peace of God which is the true peace that all Christians should be striving for. So the Christian practice of dealing with all of the hurt and pain and suffering and persecution that might befall them in this life is not to just not think about it. I'm just going to not think about those things. To pretend that it's not there or to distract themselves with other things. It is instead the command to really think about that which is true, that which is honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, to really think through these things and filter everything else through that grid. You don't spend all your time letting your mind turn over the problems again and again in your head, just focusing on problems and stress and things that cause anxiety. Instead, you meditate on these virtues and you think through your problems in light of them. This is why it makes so much sense that Paul here uses a term that has to do with mathematical evaluation in this command. Because when you are thinking about the things that God would have you think about, And it puts all of those other concerns, all those other worries that might have been dominating your thinking, it puts them into the proper perspective. It doesn't eliminate the problem, it just causes you to see the problem for what it actually is. To see it in light of a holy and good God through the lens of eternity and through His unbelievable gospel. Again, it's not God's intention that you just pretend like the trials aren't there. I'm just going to pretend like this doesn't bother me as much as it actually is. That's not the intention. That's not sanctified. It's that you grow in faith and sanctification through the trials, through the problems. This is the same principle we saw in the last passage, essentially. Paul Paul doesn't merely say, don't be anxious about anything. He doesn't merely say that. Yes, he is saying that anxiousness is the wrong response to the things that are bringing about worry and suffering in your life. But he doesn't merely say, so just don't think about that stuff anymore. He says, yes, maybe you do think about it. But in your thinking, think rightly about it and take it to God in prayer. 
Take it to that same God who chose you before the foundation of the earth and reconciled you to himself at the cost of pouring his wrath toward your sin onto his son whom he loves. Take it to that same God. Do not think that the God who is willing to do this for you can't be trusted to love you, take care of you, and give you exactly what you need as you struggle with your financial issues or with your health issues or relationship issues or your loneliness. Don't just pretend like those things don't exist or act like they're not a problem and don't just try and distract yourself with entertainment so you don't have to think about it. No, instead of that, think rightly. Do think Think rightly about them by letting your mind dwell on the concepts that we see in verse 8, even in light of the most difficult situations. This command is also a good reminder that Christians are to be a thinking people. Thinking people, not a feeling people. Not that we don't feel anything, but that's not what guides us. In a way that is actually unlike every other religious and non-religious belief out there, Christians are those who make decisions based on good, solid, sound thinking. Using this word, we see that we are to be those who are constantly considering, constantly evaluating everything through this grid that we see in verse 8. In light of all of these things that are supposed to govern my thinking... What should my next step be? That's how we're supposed to be making decisions. So that if you come to me and you use this, that that feeling of peace that you might have about doing something or not doing something, I feel feel at peace about this. That, That means very little to you as, and it should to you as a Christian. If it has not passed through the grid we see in verse 8, If you have not been contemplating and thinking through things on a Christian level, the way Christians are supposed to, it is through thinking rightly that Christians will make all kinds of decisions that are not actually, as the world may say, a blind step of faith, but actually a well-thought-out decision that makes logical and even mathematical sense in light of both the physical and what we alone have access to, spiritual data on any given situation. It makes mathematical sense. It makes logical sense in light of the physical and spiritual data that we we can put into whatever it is that we're trying to decide. And we pull from all of that and make a decision, whereas the rest of the world has physical data merely and makes decisions based on incomplete data. We think well and logically and reasoned because we have the truth. So even if the decision might make no sense to those who are pulling merely from the physical data that they see, we can make good decisions in our thinking. So, yes, at its bare minimum, at its bare minimum, this passage is the command for Christians to think about good things instead of sinful things. That is true. But it is not merely that. It is so much more than that. We need to let the adjectives we see here be the filter through which we think about everything. So let's take a moment and briefly, but not actually that briefly, (laughs) look at the words that Paul gives us to govern our thinking here. First he says, whatever is true. 
Whatever is true, that means that which is according to fact, not that which is according to appearance. What is according to fact, not what is according to feeling. Truth according to God, not according to the culture. Truth according to what God says is true in the situation, and not us making a deduction based on our perceived needs. What has God actually said about this? Not what am I perceiving? What is the full and total truth? God's narrow, by the way, definition of truth. Not the broad definition of truth that is infiltrating everywhere, and even to many church thinkers that we see, it completely undermines the concept of being able to say that for something to be true, if something's true, that means all that opposes it is false. That is the definition of truth. Not the relative idea of things that are true for some people or some situations, but not true for other people in other situations. What has God declared to be true in this situation and for all time? Whatever that is, that is what my mind is to dwell on. That is what I am to be thinking. Next he says, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. So some translations say noble. The word means that which is worthy of respect or honor. So we're to think about the things that inspire respect and honor from others. That which inspires you to what is good, to that which is worthy. This is the sense in which we can think about a day like like Memorial Day tomorrow. As we remember all the brave soldiers who are willing to sacrifice their lives to save others, for the sake of others, those who give their own lives in the effort to do what is right. There's a nobility to that kind of sacrifice that we're to think about in this calculating and evaluating type of way. What makes it noble? Why is it worthy of honor? When we watch pastors, or watched recently pastors in Canada, go to jail rather than compromise the gospel, that is worthy of our thinking, of our mind dwelling on. Why are they doing that? How are they doing that? And notice the thing that we are to think about and dwell on is the nobility of the sacrifice that is being made. That should be what we're thinking about more than the things that anger us over the existence of those laws that led to them going to jail in the first place. It's not that we don't make wise decisions about the justness of those laws, but the thing that our mind is to dwell on is the nobility of the pastors going to jail because of them. So evaluate and let your mind dwell on that which is honorable. Next he says, whatever is just. So just, whatever is upright, whatever is fair. It is actually a word that goes uh, very well with much of what has been talked about in this letter, because this particular word for just in secular Greco-Roman culture, it was a word that was used uh, to represent the standard of what, a, of what model citizenship was supposed to look like. So probably, probably the, the best-known Greek lexicon, the Bauer Donker, the Bdag, says that in reference to humans in Greco-Roman society, this word has the meaning of, quote, one who upholds the customs and norms of behavior, including especially public service, that make for a well-ordered, civilized 
society. So this takes on that, that new meaning then with the understanding of being a good citizen of heaven because of what Paul's been emphasizing throughout the letter. So certainly it can still apply to being good citizens of whatever community you're a part of, but given Paul's emphasis in the letter, it is almost certain that he has their true citizenship in heaven in mind once again, to live according to their heavenly citizenship. They're to be focused on that which would call them to upstanding, to call them to be upstanding, upright, heavenly citizens. Think about things that make for that. Aspire to that goal. That's what he is saying. The next word he says, he also says whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. This word is used to refer to sexual purity sometimes, but it has a much broader meaning, meaning than just that. It means to be something that is not mixed with any sort of moral imperfection. It can mean that which is holy or perfect. It is a word that is used in James 3.17 to describe the type of wisdom that comes from above. as a pure wisdom. It's a pure wisdom that's not mixed with any sort of error. The word is used elsewhere by, by Paul in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.22. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So the idea of, of being separate from the sins of others. And in 1 John 3.3, John says that the, John uses this word for pure uh, to describe those who have put their hope in Christ. It's a synonym for what God has done for us in regard to our sin. He has made us pure or undefiled in that passage. And I wanted to pause on this word and take a little bit of a detour that it, a, a and I recognize this. It's a note organizing, ruining uh, detour that I'm going to go on right here. But I wanted to take a little more time pointing out what this word means in order to kind of combat a wrong way that this text has been applied for many today. That verse 8 of Philippians 4, it's probably the most common use of this verse that I see in culture, in Christian culture. This verse seems to be most frequently applied essentially as an excuse for Christians to participate in and entertain themselves with some of the most vile and perverse parts of society. And kind of running, using this verse, running under the mantra of all truth is God's truth, they'll participate in almost anything the world has to offer and then say that they are just sifting through all the filth to find that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And that's what we're supposed to focus on and take from. And one spiritual leader who is fairly influential in my life, tell me this, using this verse about his approach to how he chooses movies. He said, I'll gladly wallow through a whole sewer of moral filth to search out that one precious piece of spiritual gold. And that's just a growing understanding of this verse. There are, in fact, entire ministries that are devoted to analyzing every movie, every TV show, every video game out there, only to try and discover how can Christians take what's, what's bad and be encouraged and even be sanctified as we give ourselves to the world's forms of art and entertainment in order to discover some sort of spiritual gem and be able to minister to them in their context. 
This type of ministry is, and it's just growing in American culture. So that's why I wanted to take a little bit of time and explain it. Even some of the large ministries that aren't necessarily centered around mining secular cultural for spiritual gems, they're branching out into it. So Focus on the Family has a whole division that does this. The Gospel Coalition, they're both devoting large sections of their ministries to this type of thing. Analyzing the world's art and entertainment and trying to apply it to Christians. And that type of ministry is just growing. So reviewing movies and TV shows, especially ones that are cultural phenomenons, no matter how disgusting and vile they might be, and yes, they do point out the, the filthy language and gratuitous sexual immorality that you might want to be aware of, not let your kids see it because it's bad for them. But then the bulk of the article is always on how to find God. How, to find, how do we see the gospel in this? And I feel the need to take this time on this because, it's, again, it's becoming more and more prevalent in our culture as entertainment, and it's, and it's getting worse because entertainment is getting worse, including more and more vivid depictions of sin and sinfulness as, it move, as entertainment moves from broadcast television to streaming services where they don't have to abide by all of the, the normal parental guidelines. And most Christian ministries that are Doing these things, you'll find this verse somewhere. If they give a justification for it, they'll use this verse somewhere. So as I studied this passage, the way this verse is organized, and the words that Paul uses, it does, yes, indicate that there is a sense, there is a sense in which Paul wants his readers to analyze all that they see in culture through the grid of thinking about these good things. Paul does seem to specifically be using words that were thought of as virtues, not, not only in Christianity, but in the culture in general. In fact, the, the next two words uh, that we're going to look at in this list are only used here in the New Testament, but they were common words in Greco-Roman culture. But that said, there is a huge, huge difference between telling someone to think about and evaluate that which is virtuous as you come in contact with it, And then the common way that this verse is being used by knowingly placing yourselves in a place of moral perversion so that you can try and play some sanctified version of Where's Waldo where you see if you can actually find some good in this garbage. That is going on everywhere in Christian culture. I'm imploring you not to fall into it. So I paused here on this word for pure... Why I put that here, also because I didn't want to end the point on such a negative note, but why I put it here is because this word means thinking about that which is undefiled and not mixed with error. As we see it used in those other places in Scripture that I pointed out, that should key us into the fact that, that that way that so many are using this verse is not the way that God intends it to be obeyed. He doesn't want us to give ourselves to the examination of perversion in order to find some good thing that might be mixed up with it somehow. By definition, whatever that good thing might be that's mixed up in the perversion cannot be pure because it's mixed Right? It doesn't make logical sense to say, I'm going to go out of my way to look at this piece of vile impurity in order to find that which is pure and to set my mind on that. That does not make sense. As an example of this, just, just listen to the absurdity of this article 
from one of those types of ministries. It's trying to show the good for the Christian in watching Game of Thrones. A show that was a cultural phenomenon, but, but known even by the world for its senseless violence and sexual immorality that's described as being bordering on pornographic. Listen to what this guy says. The gospel according to Game of Thrones is that when the show shocks me, I'm acutely reminded of the Christ within me. The logos, the moral grain of the universe, my dismay at the moral twists and turns of Game of Thrones, what makes the show so addictive and compelling points me toward the kingdom I long will come to earth as it is in heaven. Yes, on the surface, Game of Thrones doesn't seem to be a gospel text. The gospel is found rather in the moral relationship the viewer has with the characters. He is so desperate to find the Christian value, even in something as bad as that show, that the actual argument is watching wickedness makes me more appreciative of the purity of Jesus. That is like saying, I hate the feeling of stepping on a nail so much that every once in a while I just need to step on a nail to remind myself how much I love the feeling of not stepping on a nail. It is absurdity. It is absurdity, but it's everywhere. And given the prevalence of how this verse has been used, I thought it was important, in case any of you are caught up in that, to think about the definition of the word pure, because it is a word that is actually contained in the verse that argues so effectively against what this verse is most commonly used to defend. The opportunity, it seems is to essentially rip a verse out of context, more, more than likely just to give people an excuse to watch or participate in almost anything as long as they can say they're doing it for a spiritual reason. Someone who is actually being obedient to this passage and dwelling on that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, if that is what they are already doing... If they are already doing that all the time, then they will not have the desire to go searching for it in places that would be described as the exact opposite of those terms. You won't say something so ridiculous as I'm going to look at that which is not of moral excellence and not praiseworthy in order that I might find some small aspect of it that could be considered excellent or praiseworthy. Don't buy that lie. Recognize it when you see it. Okay. The next word is lovely. The next word in the list is the word lovely. And this is a word found only here in the entirety of the New Testament. It's a word that comes from Hellenism and has a, it has a broad meaning. It means, on a personal level, it means that which is pleasing or agreeable. That which is commonly regarded as pleasing and agreeable. That everyone, not just Christians, agree on. So the word uh, amiable would also be a good translation. Again, this is something that Christians and non-Christians recognize. People who act pleasant and don't make it their mission to make things hard for people. Who act in an understanding way, even when things aren't going the way that they would like. So an example would be someone, maybe, maybe you've seen this or experienced this before, waiting in line for a long time, only to find out when you get to the front of the line that they're out of the thing that you've been waiting for. So a pleasing, agreeable, amiable reaction that both a Christian and non-Christian would recognize would be to, to, if that person just lets it roll off their back, get something else, make sure the person working feels 
respected and doesn't feel discomfort with the interaction. So that's, that's kind of the, the, uh, the term there. And other commentators have pointed out how the word can also mean just, just the mutual understanding for that which is truly attractive and beautiful, even from an aesthetic perspective. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a term that can refer to commonly understood beauty in something like scenery or even music. You know, there's, there's just a, there's a rightness about one who's looking over the Grand Canyon and, and it takes their breath away. And there's something wrong with someone who says, I'm not impressed with that. Right? We, there's just a common understanding that everyone has. There's a goodness to listening to a well-conducted symphony and being amazed by the music that, that so many instruments organized perfectly. The type of music that they can produce. There's a goodness that everyone recognizes about that. An awe that we see when we see it done. And there's something wrong and distorted with someone who would rather listen to record scratching. This is an understanding of the virtue of loveliness that is commonly understood against that which has become distorted. So, so loveliness here can refer to outer aesthetics and an admirable inner character trait. And next, finally, we have the word translated as commendable. This is another word that only commonly held understanding that everyone has, not just Christians, of what it would mean to be a person who default speaks well of others. Not necessarily that you, would be, uh, that you would be known as that person, but that you know others that way and speak about others that way. To be known as someone who doesn't focus on the critical aspects of other people. So we're to be thinking about and contemplating in our mind that which is of good repute, not that which is critical or negative. Again, it's not that we don't confront what is negative or that we ignore it. It's that we focus on that which speaks well of others. Letting your mind dwell there makes you into someone who is not the type of person who just bites their tongues and doesn't say the negative sinful thing that they really wish they could say and then thinking that that's somehow a virtue. It means you become the type of person who doesn't see those types of things first, who sees all the praiseworthy things in others. And we can do that even in, even in any non-Christian we meet who hates God, hates his word, has a vile, filthy mouth, and is so hard to be with, we can still see them through the eyes of someone who knows based on the word of God, that person is made in the image of God. So it means you become the type of person who doesn't see the negative first, but sees the praiseworthy things first. And if the things that are negative in someone else's life that might rise to the level of needing to be corrected, they are not the lens through which that person is viewed or through which you have that conversation. Because your mind has been dwelling only on that which is commendable. So these first six words have been adjectives And we now see two phrases that are meant to kind of serve as a summary of the six things that we have been told to think about and and just words that could include anything else that he maybe didn't mention. So these are umbrella phrases that are there to incorporate all six of those terms and any other positive virtues that could be added to the list that he just didn't mention. So, So what Paul's doing here is grammatically kind of like saying, 
uh, and I hate to remind you of the food we're about to have, but uh, put your mind on that. But, but it's kind of like saying for dessert day, we are going to be having pie and cake and cookies, all sorts of delicious baked goods. Right? So the idea in the phrase baked goods is to include the examples given as well as anything else that we might be having that fits into that category. So that's what Paul is doing here by saying, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, these are the things you should be thinking about. This is what your mind should be dwelling on. It includes all six of those adjectives and anything that falls under the category of excellence, praiseworthy. All right, so he is including those, uh, all the terms above it and just any other that might fall into the category. So the first phrase is calling us to think about that which is excellent, and this does refer to a type of moral excellence or, or, or moral character. Now, the type of character or moral uprightness that rises above the rest, that, that's, that's what he's talking about. And the second phrase is worthy of praise with a biblical understanding of, of what is worthy of praise. So with our minds informed through the Bible of what is worthy of praise, we see those things and we let our minds Dwell on those things that fit that description. These are the things that we are to be thinking about, the virtues that our minds are to be dwelling on and considering and evaluating as we see them. Everything that falls into these categories is to be what is constantly revolving around your brain, constantly in your head. And we should note that if you are meditating on the Word of God... If you are thinking about the gospel, if you are reading about the character of God or the person of Christ, you will be obeying this command. You will be obeying this command because all of these words describe those things. The Word of God, His attributes, the person of Christ, are the greatest examples of that which is truly true, which is truly honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, that which is truly excellent and worthy of praise. The things of God, His Word, thinking about Jesus, the attributes of God. How ridiculous is it that people would even think that they need to scavenge around through movies and TV shows to find these things when they have the Bible? And they're never going to be able to finish mining these virtues out of that. Not as long as you live. And again, we really need to see that this is a positive command to think. To think. We are not faithful Christians if we are focused merely on guarding our minds from thinking about evil. That's all we're doing. That is, yes, something we should do, but don't kid yourself into believing you are acting faithfully in your thinking if you have only disciplined yourself to try and keep away thoughts that are directly sinful and have not directed them to what we are commanded to direct them towards. You are not faithful if you've gone only halfway on that. The idea is that as Christians, God commands us to think, to consider, and evaluate for our minds to be dwelling on certain things. That is a command of God. Don't fall into the trap of sitting around mindlessly scrolling through your phone for hours or just parking in front of a television and turning your mind off to relax for a while. The Christian is to be actively thinking, processing, and evaluating all of the time. 
We are to be taking everything we experience, everything we see, contemplate, all that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, and letting our minds dwell on those things. Active, engaged, thoughtful thinking is what it means to be an obedient Christian. And we see here in in this verse exactly what that thinking looks like. But... We don't stop with making sure we are thinking the right things. No, we are also required to act. It's not good enough to just be a reflective person who does a great job contemplating that which is good. Even if we're able to perfectly fulfill this, and we're always filling our minds with nothing but biblical truth and good, well-reasoned theology, it needs to lead to action. If you're actually thinking the way you should about these things in verse 8, if this is what you are contemplating, if these things are the things that your mind is dwelling on, then it is going to lead you to the action that we see in verse 9. And so that finally leads us to our second point, which again, how we are to act. How we are to act. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The command here, again, is at the end of those verbs, we see the actual command to practice these things. And like in verse 8, he lists the things that they are to practice before the command. But whereas in verse 8, each of the virtues was kind of disconnected by placing the word whatsoever in front of each of them, so he's kind of, they're disconnected and he's giving bigger, broader categories. Here, Paul connects all four of these verbs by putting the word and, or the Greek conjunction chi, between each one of them. So it's what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So what they have learned from him represents all that he has taught them while he's been in their presence. What they have received from him includes the teaching contained in this letter And also, any other teaching that Paul has received from Christ or from the other apostles that he has passed down to them or handed on to them. So that's what they have learned and what they have received and what they have heard. That kind of might sound like it's the same thing, but it's it's more talking about like in terms of reputation. It's what they have heard includes all that they have heard about him. He's talked about some of the stuff that they were wanting updates on uh, that are contained in this letter. So Paul is referencing his reputation. The things that you have heard about me, the things that you have heard about how I act when you're not around, the things that you have heard about how I respond to suffering and persecution, those things. So what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So what they have seen includes how he also lived among them, how he lived in front of them how he conducted himself in their presence. So what is incredible about Paul connecting all of these things is that he is saying that all of these things will lead to the same action, the same response. That the message that they get from all of his teaching on the gospel, the things that he has authoritatively taught them as an apostle and that which he has received through learning from the Old Testament Scriptures and what he has received from learning about Jesus, about Jesus' ministry, teaching, and Jesus' gospel. All of that teaching, Paul is saying, is absolutely consistent with everything that you have heard about me. 
and how I live, and what you have seen in me. So putting into practice all of those things, what you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, really is just leading them to the same thing. The one thing that he has been teaching them throughout this book, this is what it looks like, putting into practice what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, this is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul is saying that living according to all that I have taught you and patterning your life after my example looks exactly the same, and that is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. What an incredible testimony. Paul doesn't, in, the, in this verse, doesn't go into great detail about each of the exact things that he's already elaborated on in the passage, because this is a simple statement that's supposed to sum up everything that he's taught. The way he gives the command is a way of calling them to be obedient to everything that he has already said, everything that he's already been calling them to throughout the letter. And again, this is coming immediately after the command of what they are to be thinking about in verse 8. And again, we're to, we're to understand the two commands is connected. The English translation show this a little bit by keeping it in the same paragraph. But remember what I said earlier, that in the Greek, the connection is made even more evident by the fact that they're the same sentence. Paul is connecting the virtues that he has just told them to be thinking about to that which they have learned and received and heard and seen in him. So he is saying that the very things that you are to be thinking about, those are what you have heard and seen in me and learned from me in my teaching and in my example. So if you're going to further our grammatical illustration from a little while ago about the dessert, again, at the risk of getting your minds on the food. So if I were to say for, for dessert today, we have pie and cake and cookies, all sorts of delicious baked goods, all those things which you have seen on the table. That, that's what Paul is doing here. He's doing something like that. He's just adding another layer to what he's been saying. What you have heard and seen in me is the representation of what you are to be thinking about. So if you want to know what's true and what's honorable and what's just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy, that's what I've been teaching you. That's what you've heard from me. That's what you've heard about me. And that's what you've seen in me. That's what he's saying. So there really is supposed to be a connection between what they're thinking about and how they are to be living. The way that you know how to live rightly is by living according to that which you have been obediently dwelling on in your mind. That's how you know how to live rightly. One leads to another. Thinking leads to action. So it stands to reason then that if you find yourself struggling to overcome an area of sin, or you're constantly giving in to fear or anxiety, you're probably someone who has not taken the command about how you are to be thinking actively. You've not been taking that command seriously enough. Because you just will. You will act on what you are thinking. You just will. Your actions follow your mind. What you are thinking about is the indicator of who you are becoming. That's how it works. So if you see yourself as spiritually stuck, you're not growing like you should, or you can't seem to help but allow all of the worries and troubles in life to have this huge impact on how you live, or maybe there's some sinful practice that you just, just 
can't get over, then there's a good chance that you're not a disciplined thinker. Because it is very difficult for one whose mind is filled with that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable to then live in ways that are contrary to those things. That's what your mind is full of. That's what comes out. So the picture here at the end of all of the imperatives of the book of Philippians is for the people to really think about, to fill their minds with all of the good and glorious, rich gospel truths that have filled this letter and that fill the entire Bible, to devote their thinking to these virtues, to consider them, to evaluate them, and then to make logical assessments based on them about their entire, entire lives. And then with minds full of that type of thinking, to then respond with the types of lives that thinking rightly will lead them to. And that is a life that is continually putting into practice all that the Bible teaches and following the examples of godly men and women who are doing just that. That leads to a quick, very quick final point slash conclusion, what we are to expect what we are to expect. And so that obviously has to do with that wonderful promise at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Think like this. Practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. This is, again, advancing and building on the promise of verse 7 where he talks about the peace of God, surpassing all understanding, guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we're told when we're faithful to not be anxious about anything, but to pray about everything instead, your hearts and minds are guarded by the peace of God. And now we see that if we are faithful to discipline our mind, to think about that which God would have us think about, and then to put into practice a life of obedience to that which the Word of God teaches... And if we pattern ourselves after the examples of faithful men and women, then the God of peace will be with us. We'll be living this life stirring in, should I do this? Should I not do this? What's going on? I'm confused. What do I do? It's not that the omnipresent God of peace is not with you when you are not living this way. It's that you are living in a way that is preventing you from knowing Him as the God of peace. God is not merely the giver of peace. He is the God of peace. And to know Him, to know Him rightly, is to know true peace. The promise that He will be with us isn't isn't a reward the same way you might tell your child that if they obey you on something, you'll give them a piece of candy or a toy or something like that. It's not, but, but it's not that type of reward. The, the reward that's promised here is a reward that is tied necessarily to the command that is given. It's a byproduct of obedience. Like, like working hard on building a piece of furniture is naturally tied to the reward of having the piece of furniture. The God of peace uh, being with you naturally flows from this. So that means if you find it difficult to refer to God as the God of peace, and think about it, is that, do, do you refer to him that way? Do you think about him that way? If you find it difficult to refer to him or think of him or pray to him as the God of peace, maybe it's easy 
Maybe it's easy for you to think of him as creator. Maybe it's easy for you to think of him as your savior and your redeemer. But if you're honest, you don't really think of him or know him as the God of peace. Then look no further than what you are dwelling on in your thinking. See what the practice of your life demonstrates about you, what you really believe about God and his truth in this moment. Because when our minds are focused on what they should be, and when that overflows into a life of faithful Christian practice, then all of those things, which would normally make for a mind that is maybe flooded with worry and confusion, fear, a life that is fraught with anxiety and indecision, all of those things will just melt away. And, and not melt away in that they no longer exist. Not melt away in their existence. But they will melt away in their importance as you find yourself and know yourself to be safely in the hands of the God of peace. And God, as we thought on and prayed through earlier in the service, we know, we understand that we are those who were brought forth in iniquity. It is easy for us to retreat into that thinking. Lord, we are so thankful that you are kind enough, gracious enough, and so loving of us, even in our weakness, that you would give us the command to think and to be good and wise thinkers, and then to tell us what we are to think about. Father, I do pray for our church that we would put these things into practice, that we would not fall into the traps, the temptations of the world to try and manipulate this verse into something that it isn't as an excuse to indulge in sin, first of all, but also to not fall into the, the trap of, of, of just trying to clear our mind or not focusing on certain things, thinking well and thinking intently and wisely and logically using all of what we know to be true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, all of those things that we see and know about you and your character and know from you and your word and see in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would constantly be filling our mind with these things and then respond rightly out of what we have been thinking about in the practice of our lives. And that we truly would, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what we might be dealing with in our families, in our relationships, in the culture, in our job, in, uh, at work, in our families, any of those difficult things, that we would know you as the God of peace. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.